Anyways, uh, it was great getting to meet your pastor. I, I met him at a uh, sort of church planning lunch that Providence puts on every year, and we ended up getting coffee. And um, by way of Providence, I am now here. But um, anyways, I've been very much looking forward to this. Uh, sometimes, so I'll, I'll just I'll expose myself here. I've been married for a little over a month. And uh, <laughs> communication... It can be challenging, and uh, one, one, of the, one of the main points of communication that I think can be the most interesting is there seems to be sort of a tension between what is said and what is heard and what is intended. <laughs> you can amen that if, you, if you'd like, but um, Friday night, Providence actually had their staff Christmas party out at a place called Ancient Lore Village, which is way out past Alcoa. Anyways, this is cool little medieval kind of thing that was meant to look like the Hobbit village. It's interesting. And I put the location in Apple Maps. I'm on my way. Apple Maps says, take a turn in this road. I take a turn in this road, and suddenly now it's this one-lane driveway with a white fence on either side with no room to turn around. It takes me on for about a mile past where I was supposed to go and puts me at a house. Okay? And my wife was leaving from work. And I turned around and was I figured out where I was supposed to go. And I, I texted her and I called her. I was like, listen, do not turn where the white fences are. Turn where the stone entrance is at. And if you see white fences, do not turn into the fences. And if you see them, don't do it. Okay. And if it tells you to turn into the white fences, do not. And I repeat, do not turn into the white fences because it will carry you in the middle of nowhere for an hour and you will freak out and I will have to come get you. And do not turn in the white fences. So she's, she's driving and she calls me. She goes, hey, I'm getting close. Wait a minute, I see fences, and uh, I think I just pulled into somebody's house. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm like, Hannah, are you telling me that after all of this? And she goes, nope, 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 wait, I steed the stone entrance. And she said I was freaking her out and getting too worked up talking about the fences. But needless to say, apparently she never said that the fences were white. She just said she saw fences. And what was intended, what was heard, and what was meant was all wrong. And uh, she made it with no trouble. Um, turns out I was the only one that couldn't use the GPS. <laughs> but I want to talk to you today about something that I think is lost in translation, literally, between what's intended, what's read, and what's meant. So if you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, we're, we're going to be in Romans chapter 4 for most of the day, but we're also going to be in Genesis chapter 15 for just a brief second. And if you'll forgive me, um, I've been wrestling with some sinus stuff all week, so my throat's a little messed up, so might not be able to talk as loud today, but we're going to be in Romans chapter 4. Is everybody in Romans chapter 4? All right. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to kind of give some commentary as we go through the chapter, and then we'll pause. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Meaning that if your boss agrees to pay you a set amount of money, and you work for a set amount of hours, the boss now owes you, it is your due, a set amount of money. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, the faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are uncovered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Was it not after, but before he was circumcised? He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, which is talking about us, that's the Gentiles, so that righteousness was be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, this is where we're really going to lock in verses 13 through 25. For the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Because what value is faith if the gift of eternal life is something that is owed to you because you have worked to deserve it? That's my commentary. Just to be clear, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgressions. Catch this. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. The question that we're going to be answering today is basically what is saving faith and how do I have it? Now, for the sake of this sermon, I want you to take the phrase saving faith and put it on a shelf because realistically what we're working with today is actually not so much the phrase saving faith, but the phrase we're working with is actually called saving belief because the word for faith and the word for belief in Greek is actually the same word. It's the word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. And so whenever you read faith and you read belief in the book of Romans, Paul's actually using the same word and we in English are the ones that have turned them into two different words. So now... Picking back up in verse 16 again, that is why it depends on belief in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but to the one that shares the belief of Abraham, who is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. There it is. Who gives life to the dead and to calls into existence the things that do not exist in hope. He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in the faith which he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in the faith as he gave glory to God. Here are the two verses that we are going to spend the rest of the time understanding. Right here. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justifications. Let's pray. Father, as we get into this word today, I pray that your gospel would go forth and just overtake the hearts and minds of all of those that have yet to believe. And God, I pray that as we get into this, all of those that are believers, God, I pray that this would serve as an encouragement and an uplifting time, God, so that we can further learn to lean into the goodness of your promise. 
God, help me and strengthen me. And despite my weakness, I pray that your gospel would go forth in your name. Amen. Okay, so if you've spent any time in church at all, anywhere, I'm sure you've heard the phrase saving faith, right? The, the issue with saving faith is that because belief and faith are the same word in the Greek, it just kind of, I don't know, was a light bulb moment to me that I think our definition of faith and our definition of belief actually tend to take on two different characteristics, and I'll, I'll prove it this way. Imagine you go to any good old church funeral. Here lays our friend, Dalton Claghorn. He was a man of great faith. In fact, he was such a man of great faith, he attended church every Sunday for the last 20 years. He tithed 15% of all of his money, and he prayed over all of his food. Here is the proof. Dalton was a man of great faith. And everybody says, okay. Think of it like this. Here lies our friend Dalton Claghorn. He was a man of great belief. He went to church every Sunday for the last 20 years. He tithed 15% of his paychecks, and he prayed over all of his food. This is proof he's a man of great belief. Problem is, in English, it makes no sense to try to validate what someone believes based off of what they do. But somehow, that is our definition of what faith is. See, we prove that someone has faith based off of what they've done. This is the way we measure, has someone had great faith? Well, have they done this? Have they done this? Have they done this? Have not they done this? This reveals to us, subconsciously, the human intuition of understanding faith is ultimately rooted in what you have done. How well have you performed? How did you score on your Christian report card? Does he play well with others? Does he work well independently? Did he turn in all of his homework? Okay, if you got an A-plus in all those categories, you get in, fire insurance for everybody, say this prayer, take this communion, you're saved. And if you haven't scored very well, then it doesn't count. See, so we prove that you've been a man of great faith based off of what you do. That is a works-based gospel. That's literally the opposite of what Romans is teaching. Okay, so why does it matter to differentiate between faith and belief? Because here's the news. There is no amount of things that you can do to even the score between what you have done to accumulate a sin debt that you owe to God. There is no report card score that's good enough. And we operate under this false assumption that if we go to church enough and if we give enough money and if we do enough good things, we can accumulate enough goodwill towards men that when we get to heaven we can say, I got God plus I got all these good things that I did. And the Bible says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. So the concept that Abraham was saved by faith is literally opposite to the natural mind in the sense that, how did Abraham get saved? Okay, verse 22. Or, sorry, verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That's it. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he has promised. That's why it was counted to him as righteousness. All he had to do was believe. You want to see how radical of a concept this is? You go to work tomorrow, sit down at your desk, and say, I fully believe that in three months I will be an employee here and I will get a raise. And don't do a lick of work. 
There is no system in which we have in the natural world that allows us to achieve an award without us having to contribute some sort of good thing. It is totally backwards to the human understanding to think that Abraham was able to get into heaven based off of faith and faith alone, belief and belief alone, in Christ and Christ alone, that Christ did the work, that Christ was dead, buried, did the saving, and all of that good stuff. It makes no sense to the natural mind. So much so that in the church world, if you actually try to really bring forth Romans 4 for what it is, you get accused of what's called easy believism. This is why I think it's actually a task worth conquering, is that if you just live in the normal space of understanding, Romans 4 is meaningless. Because if you try to make it to heaven based off of the performance of your good works, then there's no good news in the fact that you don't have to work because you're still trying to work. If I said, hey man, I'm giving you three months of vacation. Don't even worry about coming into the office. You know what? Just go and enjoy. Actually, while you're gone, I'm going to give you a credit card. And with on this credit card, you've got a balance of $5,000 a month. Just go hog wild. You've wasted it if you spent the next three months coming into the office logging 10 hours overtime a week. Because you've blown the opportunity to enjoy what it means to be gifted something. So... To the natural mind, we have sort of this convoluted sense of, well, I kind of have to work. And if I don't have to work, then this is too easy and it's too good to be true. This is easy believism. And you know what? I'm just going to keep doing what I was raised to do. And then at the end of this thing, if I make it to heaven, then it doesn't really matter anyway. Let me explain to you how it even came to pass that Romans 4 was written in the first place. Let's go to Genesis chapter 15. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm going to read this chapter too. It's a lot of reading today, but I think it'll be worth it. I could turn my pages, I'd already be there, I promise. Okay, so now imagine, before we read this, I come to you, a good Okanaganly educated sort of individual, and I said, what is the gospel? Explain it to me. And all of your good study as a good Christian, you say, well, the closest contextual understanding we have for the teachings of Christ was in the book of Acts because that was the dispensation of the early church and they were the closest to Christ. And in the first book of the dispensation of the early church, the gospel is described as two words, faith and repentance. Therefore, my understanding of the gospel is faith and repentance. Okay, that's, that's accurate. That's, that's what Acts says. But here, here's the question I have for the church is understanding that the gospel in the book of Acts, is faith and repentance. Um, can you apply this to your life, and does it make you in any way more fruitful of a Christian than it was before understanding that that's what the gospel was? Because if our understanding of the gospel can be consolidated to two words, so that's useful for the point of explanation, but if it doesn't drive us to be the hands and feet of Christ, then I think it's like what Paul says, knowledge puffs up. So understanding that we live in the South that this is a fairly churched area. I'm, I'm operating on the assumption that most people have a context for what the word repentance means, right? So that word is used in semi-regular conversation outside of church. We know what repentance is. But the difficulty then becomes in preaching the gospel, how do I explain to someone the good news of faith if my own definition of what faith is means I have to work for it? 
And so the problem that I think we want to unpack today is that even as you go on to seminary and you meet the educated of the educated, sometimes the very definition of what the gospel is can be beautifully consolidated into two words, but when it comes time into making those two words applicable and making people fruitful, well, suddenly there's a disconnect because I can never be fruitful if my fruitfulness is coming from a place of my own performance. Because if my fruitfulness is coming from a place of my own performance, all I'm ever going to be is bitter because every time I try to measure my performance up against someone else's guess what it's never good enough so as we read Genesis 15 I want you to get a grip on the value of the fact that God is about to make a covenant with Abraham and as we go back to Romans 4 I want us to read Romans 4 through the lens of a man that understands what the covenant is and what it means Genesis 15 After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Okay, pause. The Lord says to Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham responds back, and he says, You can talk about my reward all you want, but God, I'm an old man, and I have no kids. In fact... It's actually such a bad situation. The guy that's going to inherit all of my stuff is Eliezer of Damascus. And so Abraham actually is God's trying to tell him, okay, God appears from the sky, speaks audibly to Abraham, tries to tell him that he's going to be blessed, and before he can get it out, Abraham's like, shh, hold on, we have a problem first. Insane, right? So... Abraham responds to God and he says, yeah, 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 okay, we can talk about blessings, but first we need to address the fact that I don't even have a son and I'm not getting any younger, okay? Well, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my house will be heir. Pick up in verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, look towards heaven, number the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. Verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, questioning God again, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Okay, so God says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. He says, wait a minute, I don't have any kids. So God takes him outside, shows him the stars, and he says, if you can even count them, count them. But that's how many kids you're going to have. That's going to be your offspring. This is going to be the seed of you. And he says, "Uh, wait a minute, um, how do I know that I can trust this? (laughs) Come on, insane, right? And so God says, all right, fine. Verse 9, he said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old. A female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid each of each half over against the other. Okay, so he's he's got these animals. He cuts the halves in half, or he cuts the animals in half, puts one half here, one half here. Enough space to be able to walk through the halves. And when the sun was going as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. Okay, so what I'm imagining now is Abraham spreads the halves of these animals out, and as he's getting ready to take the first call to action, 
it says the sun was going down. God just sends this deep sleep on Abraham, and behold, a dreadful, dreadful great darkness falls upon him. And I'd, I'd like to think that as God is getting ready to explain to him that his seed is going to be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and that they're going to be servants, and that they're going to be afflicted. I like to think that there's like a, a bass drum kind of going in the background, and like a dramatic, you know, and just like somber mood, and Abraham's he's trembling, and he's thinking like, holy smokes, why are you going to bless me if you're just going to make them to be, you know, servants, and all, it's just all this miserable stuff. And I'd, I'd like to think Abraham is just like being shook in a very dramatic, you know, John Wick kind of fashion. And then immediately after this, verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And the, the, the bass drum kind of fades into like God bless America on a trumpet, you know. And it's like an eagle swoops in and it's real patriotic. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And literally as this is happening... Here, here comes the local news reporter singing, you know, the star-spangled banner. And as the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All of it is going to be your seed. Okay, here's the problem. That chapter is really weird and it doesn't make much sense. Let me contextualize this for you. Okay, so God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And Abraham says, well, you can't really bless me because I don't have any kids. And God says, come outside, look at the stars, this is going to be your seed. And Abraham says, yeah, but how can I know that I can trust you? Who even are you? Okay, like, God. And God says, okay, fine, go and get these animals, cut them in half. And this was the cultural norm. If I came to Pastor Rick and I said, all right, here's what we're going to do. For the next three years, I'm going to let you use my fields in order to, to grow your crops. But every third month, I'm going to get to kill one of your oxen, and I'm going to eat them so as to sustain my family. And we would say, okay, we would go get a goat, we would cut the goat in half, we would put one half here, we would put one half here, and we would both walk through the halves of the goat. What that meant was, if I don't uphold my end of the deal, let me be as this goat who's been cut a half and been spread apart. It's a really dramatic way of a good handshake, okay? Now, here's the significance. Often what would happen in that time is a king comes in, the king invades the territory, just for argument's sake, let's say the Perizzites invade the Hittites, and there's a nice little Hittite farmer out in Oak Ridge, and he's got a bunch of cattle. And he comes to the king and he says, listen king, I promise that I'll just be a good peaceful citizen, and I'll farm my cattle, I'll pay my taxes, and uh, in exchange, I would just ask that you leave my family alone and, and that we'd be all right and we'll do everything that you asked us to do. Just, you know, don't, don't let any trouble come to us. And the king would say, okay, I consent. And he'd, he'd sit on his throne and the serf would come and he'd cut the goat in half and he'd kill the goat and put one half here, one half here. And then the serf would come and he would walk through the two halves of the animals and the king would kind of just stand there and then the serf would walk away, and that was their way of saying, okay, it will be done. The reason why the king never had to walk through the two halves is because it was just assumed that if anybody's going to not uphold their end of the deal, it would be you, right? Because the king doesn't make any mistakes. 
And so God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and from your seed I'm going to make this powerful nation, and they're going to have to really go through some stuff, but at the end of the day, they're going to take all of this land. And he says, you know what, here's how you can trust me, Abraham, we're going to make a deal. No doubt Abraham's thinking, okay, let me kill these goats, and he's going to cut them in half. He backs up, and before Abraham can walk through the halves of the animals, God puts him in a deep sleep, makes this promise, and then God goes before Abraham, and he walks through the halves in the form of a fire. God makes the covenant saying, Abraham, you are expecting me to force you to be the one that guarantees that this deal will come to completion. But you're 85 years old and this deal requires that you have a kid. I'm counting on the fact that you can't do it. This was the only covenant made in the history of covenants where the king goes first and he makes the covenant despite the fact that he knows the other guy can't uphold his end of the deal. God made the covenant knowing that Abraham could contribute nothing but doubt and problems. It's like our relationship with the government. But God made this deal with Abraham knowing that, that Abraham couldn't do anything. He couldn't have his own kids. He couldn't do this. He couldn't do that. And what is Abraham supposed to do after Abraham dies? How's Abraham going to see fit that his people come and, and inherit all of this land? Abraham contributed nothing to the story. This was God going before Abraham despite the fact that Abraham was never going to be good enough. The only thing that Abraham had that he could contribute to this covenant was believing that God would do what God had promised. How do I know that God's going to take this seed of mine, give me a son and give me a people that will be as the stars of the sky? Because he said he would. That's the only thing Abraham has at the end of the day is God's word. God said it. It will be and it will be so. That is it. He didn't contribute anything. He didn't think it up. He didn't initiate it. He didn't bring it to pass. He contributed nothing. It was God that thought it up. It was God that created Abraham. It was God that allowed Abraham to have a son named Isaac. It was God that will bring Abraham through it was God that upheld his end of the promise, and it was God that positioned Paul to be in an area where he could say, all right, church of Rome, Jew, Gentile, guess what? From the foundation of this covenant, it never was about who was a Jew. It was never about who was a Gentile. It was never about who was circumcised. It was never about who had the most money or who paid the most tithes or who did the most good or who did the most bad. Guess what? You all get in if you believe because it was Christ in Christ alone. There's no amount of good you can do. There's no amount of bad you can do. Christ is a better Savior than you are sinner. Period. Dot. The end. That's the gospel. Amen. And so we find ourselves here now in Romans chapter 4. And as any good Christian, you're probably thinking, well, is it that easy? <laughs> yeah. Here's why. Verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Okay, wait a minute. Verse 20 says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Well, what did we just read? Twice in the same chapter. He's literally talking to God. God appears in, in the, the form of where Abraham can see him and he's talking to him and he still doubts. Okay? But in Romans, it says, But... No unbelief or doubt made Abraham waver in his faith. How does that work? I'm still in the story from David Platt because it's too good. When Rolls-Royce first launched as a company, Rolls-Royce had a, had a reputation that none of their cars ever broke down, ever. Not, not once. They never had a single breakdown. 
And so gentleman in Europe buys a Rolls-Royce, and he's like, all right, well, I'm going to test if Rolls-Royce genuinely don't break down, because every car breaks down eventually. And he starts, I believe it was in Germany, and he drove all the way through Europe, and he was like on day 76 in a row or something of, of, of driving, and the car finally breaks down. So he calls Rolls-Royce, and he's like, yo, listen, you said my car wouldn't broke down, my car broke down. So Rolls-Royce sends a mechanic, mechanic gets on a plane, goes to meet this dude, and literally within 24 hours, the car was running. And he says, hey, man, what do I owe you? Mechanic says, nothing. Um, you know, this is, this is just what we do, whatever. Mechanic leaves, gets back on a plane, goes to the Rolls-Royce factory. The gentleman drives the car back home, and he tries to call up Rolls-Royce, and he's like, hey, listen, uh, my car had broke down in the middle of nowhere, and, and you guys sent a mechanic out, and this was his name. And I was just wondering what I could do if you could give me his address so I could send him some payment. And they said, sir, we have no record of your car ever breaking down. And suddenly, that's how they figured out, well, this is why Rolls-Royce cars don't break down. <laughs> Any report we have of one being faulty, you know, we fix it and then we throw it away. This is how Abraham's unrighteousness was processed in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham gets to the end of his life. By faith, he believes the covenant, the promise is upheld. And now suddenly, all of this is cast into the sea of forgetfulness. Abraham is in heaven with God. Everything is great. And who is going to bring a charge against Abraham saying that he was not a believer when his very unbelief was covered by the blood of Christ? So it goes for you. Now, here, here's the, the, the meat of this. Verses 22. This is why it was, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What does that mean? That means that the reason why God made this covenant is so that in 2,000 years from the day that this covenant was made, when it came time to take the wild olive branch, which was the Gentiles, and graft it into the branch of the regular olive branch, which was the Jews, Paul can write to the church of Rome and he can say, you got a lot of dispute over who did what and who looks what way and who had this as their mom and who was circumcised and who wasn't circumcised. And Paul can say that 2,000 years ago when the covenant was made with our father Abraham, it was always about faith. Because even in the time when the covenant was first made with our wonderful, powerful, patriarchal father Abraham, even Abraham couldn't contribute a darn thing to his faith except for the doubt that could almost ruin it. That's all Abraham had to offer. So who are you to think, Jewish crowd, that you have any faith or any works that's better than even Abraham's? Sit down, shut up, believe Christ. <laughs> and because the, because the covenant was made this way, Paul had the ability to tell the Jews that it's always been about faith and it's never been about you. The gospel is a story about you being saved that has nothing to do with you. And that's the good news. And so follow-up, what happens after Genesis 15? Here's, here's some quick math for the, the sake of the story. Abraham, we know, has a son with Hagar because Sarai got impatient and she says, have a, have a son with Hagar. And we know that at the time that um, Hagar gave birth, Abraham, I believe it was 86 years old. So the earliest that Abraham could have been when conceiving Ishmael would have been 85. So it's about... Average to think that Abraham at the time that this covenant was made was about 85 years old. Well, we know that Abraham ultimately doesn't end up having Isaac until Abraham is 99.
So from the time that God makes this covenant and God passes through the animals in the form of a fire pot, from the time that God comes in and grabs Abraham's doubt by the throat and casts it to the sea of forgetfulness, 14 years passed before Abraham actually ended up having a son. 14 years of adding to the unlikelihood that Abraham would ever be able to conceive. Sarah is 89, Abraham is 99, 100 years old. Romans 4 says he was almost dead. God likes dead things. That's why we're all here. Amen? And so 14 years passed from the time that God makes the initial covenant to the time that Abraham ends up having a son. And so literally, from the time that the 14 years passes, Abraham finally has Isaac. It's a wonderful thing. God comes to Abraham and he says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to circumcise not only yourself, but you're going to circumcise your whole house. That was the proof that you were sealed under the covenant. And that's why Paul writes this about circumcision in Romans 4. He's saying it wasn't the circumcision that saved him. The circumcision was a proof that the covenant had been made. And it was a seal. And this is why the story is significant for us. Here is the part of the promise that we forget. When God comes to Abraham and he says, circumcise you and your whole household, there is a contingency that was mind-blowing to the Old Testament people. He says, if you will take your Gentile slaves and circumcise them too, even they can be in on the goodness of this covenant. I don't care about where you're from, what you look like, what you've done. My covenant made with you has nothing to do with you. So if you will circumcise even the Gentiles of your household, they can be saved too. Radical concept for the ancient Near East. The fact that Gentiles could even be saved is much of what is written in the book of Acts. That's, that's why Cornelius had to speak in tongues in front of Peter so as to prove that his salvation was legitimate. The bridge between Gentile and Jew was so vast that literal supernatural things had to happen in the book of Acts so as to prove what God said to Peter on the roof, don't call common what I've called clean. The Gentiles can now be into the faith. We're still dealing with the cultural schisms of that by the time we get to Romans. And as far back as 2,000 years before, God makes a contingency that allows the Gentiles to be part of the covenant. Mind-blowing. And so we find ourselves now kind of shifting through the pieces of, of all we have in Romans 4, and we read this. But the words that was counted to him were not written for our sake alone, but for ours also, for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Okay, what does that mean? Here is the gospel. Because the covenant was always about faith. If you are alive, Jew, Gentile, Canadian, African, American, Argentina, Wales, Belgium, Australian, does not matter where, you from, or where you're from. If you believe that you are a sinful, fallen human, that Jesus Christ was Lord of all, Son of the only living God, came to earth in human form, lived for 33 years, died for your sin, rose again on the third day, and stands in the gap for you so that you do not have to suffer the sin debt and the wrath of God for the sin that you you've accused, if you just believe that, that Jesus' blood covers you for all the wrong you've done, you can be saved. Actually, you will be saved, and there's nothing that you can do to stop the aggressive, overbearing, life-changing, mind-altering love of God. But here's what it takes. It requires you to believe that Jesus really was God, that he really did live, that he really did die, that he really did ascend, and here's the news. If you believe it, it will change you. 
There is no conceding that Jesus is Lord of my life, that he died for my sins, that he raised from the dead, and he's radically given me a rebirth, and I live the way that I did before I believed it. It cannot happen. But here's the problem. We start to line up our faith with the things that we do and the things we don't do, and we forget that from before the foundation of the world, God's covenantal love with you wasn't about what you do. It's about what he already did. And so we find ourselves now in 2022, and we just can't get over the fact that this seems like easy believism to believe that Jesus died, rose again, and he saved my soul. I can ride the coattails of his eternal victory all the way to heaven. Yes, that's true, but it comes with a death to you. And here is the problem. We like to take works. We like to take the amount that we tithe, the amount that we do, and we think, surely this is sufficient for me to make it in. Wrong. If you've got a man who has a son, and they look very similar You don't say, see, this guy looks like the man that we're saying to be his father, therefore he is his son. No, what proves that the son is actually the son of the father is the blood work. The resemblance that the son has to the father is just good evidence that the blood work is accurate. Tracking with me? So when you get reborn and the blood of Christ radically transform your life, the work that you do is proof that you have been reborn. It's like this. A faith that works is a faith that works. If your faith don't work, your faith don't work. And that's as simple as it is. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, that he came in human flesh, that he ascended back to heaven after his death and three-day resurrection, and here's the other part that we can't leave out. What are you believing that Jesus did for you? You're believing that Jesus can save you from the wrath of the Father. Because part of believing the gospel is to believe that if Jesus does not step in in front of me, I'm going to be evaporated from a righteous wrath of God that's going to destroy me for all of the sin I've committed. Whether Jew, Greek, whether you're five or whether you're 50, the amount of sin that is in all of our our lives qualifies us to be evaporated in a righteous wrath of God's holy judgment. And the only hope you have is that the blood of Jesus steps in and that that righteous judgment falls on him instead of you. Because if I got to pay for the debt that I owe, I'm toast and you're toast and the whole earth that's ever lived or will live is toast. The blood of Jesus stopping God's wrath from falling on us is the only hope that we have. That's why it's a good thing that it was by faith and faith alone because there's not a single thing I can do to stop the wrath of God from punishing me for an eternity because it's what I deserve. So what do you believe when you believe the gospel? You don't believe that Jesus is some Santa Claus in the sky that wants to make your life better. You believe he is your only shot of reaching eternal life because the goodness of the gospel is that you don't have to pay the debt that you owe. I don't have to pay the debt that I've acquired because Jesus paid it for me. It's finished. And the only thing that I can ever do to access that great blessing is to believe and to believe and to believe because he did it all. So how do we apply it? How do we, how do we be fruitful Christians understanding the gospel? Okay, I want you to think about now your average 18, 19-year-old kid that goes off to college and you know they were doing okay and now all of a sudden after four years they come home and they've got blue hair and you know gauges and tattoos that say I'm a Scorpio and all that good stuff. What, what you often see a lot of the time in these, these radical shiftings where, you know, all of us tend to see people, I go liberal, is, is what, what you see is you start to see evidence in the lives of these people that they've gone 
liberal. And, and one of the main ways that you see this proof is that you'll see on Fox News today, um, you know, in, in favor of women's rights, we have 10,000 people marching uh, that abortion is a woman's right. Okay, and then CNN will pan over and they'll say today, um, because they hate women, we have 15,000 people marching against women's rights and they, they think abortion is wrong. And, and then you'll, 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 you'll pan back over and then this side says, we believe that it's wrong, so we're going to march. And this side says, we believe it's right, so we're going to march. And ultimately, what you know is that this side believes this way because they march to prove it. And what you have when people go off to college and they start to march and they start to protest is what they believe has been formed in a way that now believes something different than what it used to and the actions that they take reflect what they believe. If you believe abortion is murder, I would be in this side that says, hey, abortion's murder, uh, or murder. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to march to save the babies. That seems like a noble cause, right? I would do that too. Why? Because I believe that abortion is murder. And because I believe it, my actions are going to be a reflection of what I believe. If you believe that abortion is a woman's right, you're going to have 10,000 people that march for hours on end because they believe it. What you believe is an indicator of what your actions are because your actions cannot deviate from what you believe. So here's the proof. Your actions are a reflection of the sum total of two things, what you believe in and where your affections are. Your affections and your beliefs overlap at the point of your actions. If you believe that Christ is Lord of all and that he saved your soul and that he died and he rose again, you can't live a lukewarm lifestyle because to truly believe that he did that for you demands, it demands, it demands that I live a life like Christ. If he died for me, I'll die for others. If he gave all that he had, I'll give all I have. You can't really say that you believe it with every fiber of your being and your actions not be a reflection of what you believe. Furthermore, where your affections lie is going to be a revealer of what your actions are too. Because here's the thing, if I really am dead set that finances are going to be what determine my quality of life, because I believe that finances are going to be what determine the quality of my life... And because my affections are for what the things finances can buy, my actions will revolve around acquiring more finances. But if I believe that Jesus is Lord of the universe and I have affection for him because he saved my soul, my actions are going to reflect that in the sense that I am a man who acts based off of what he believes and what he loves. So how do you apply the truth of the gospel? Check the alignment of your affections. If you believe that money is going to be the Christ... Your actions are going to serve money. If you believe that you love the things that money can offer, your actions are going to pursue the things that money can buy. If you believe that your legacy is going to be ultimately the thing that lasts, your actions and your affections are going to mirror the heart of one that believes and has an affection for his legacy. But if you love Christ and you believe Christ has saved your soul, it's going to bring you to a place of radical sellout where at the center of your universe is not you and what you can do and how you can be more religious, but Christ and how Christ has propped up every good thing that you've ever done. When the sun sets, it's Christ. When the sun rises, it's Christ. When you wake up, it's Christ. When you go to work, it's Christ. And this is hard to hear because we think, man, no, I've done too much and either I don't deserve it or I've been too good that this doesn't apply to me. Line up your life with the thief on the cross. Not one prayer, 
Not one church service. Not one communion. Not one friend. Not one time in discipleship. Not one church membership class. But he believed and he got in. On the other side of the cross, same case. No church. No tithe. No communion. No church membership class. No sinner's prayer. No nothing. But he didn't believe and he went to hell. Are you born again? Naked on the cross about to die. One man goes to heaven, one man goes to hell. What's the difference? Christ. Because it was always Christ and it will always be Christ. If you want to know, have I really believed? It's not about what you do. It's about is Christ at the center of your universe and have you believed? And if so, it's going to redefine everything. And so we're, we're left to kind of dance within the space of legalism and the hyper-grace movement of well, what do I do and what do I don't do? And the simple truth is, if you believe Christ, it will challenge you in every aspect of your daily walk. It will challenge you in the way that you talk to your wife. It will challenge you in the way that you spend your time. It will challenge you in the time that you spent praying. It will challenge you on the way that you handle people cutting you off in traffic. Every avenue of your life will be so challenged that you don't have time to become a Pharisee because Christ and Christ and Christ is challenging me. And every time that I think about Christ on that cross, simultaneously, I must also think that it should be me that's there and not him. And so if Christ is at the center of it all, it's going to demand that you live a life that has Christ at the center of it. And it's going to insulate you from worrying about everybody else. And that's how saving belief radically changes your life. And it's how and why saving belief saves your soul. Because it was always Christ and it will always be Christ Faith is the hand that receives the free gift. Faith is the mouth that drinks the living water. Faith is the eyes that behold the glory of God. It's our responsibility. It's a gift from him. And without Christ, it's all meaningless. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we could come together and get in your word. Lord, I pray, God, that this gospel would go forth and just arrest hearts and lives. God, I pray that there would be a true, genuine impact made here today, Father, and that if people have yet to truly believe the gospel and truly yet to be reborn, God. I pray that you would arrest their hearts, Father God, and that you would haunt us with your truth until that moment comes. God, I pray that every life in here would never be able to escape the convicting power of your Holy Spirit had they heard this gospel message today. God, everyone heard it. God, it's been outlined in black and white. Father, I pray that the true power of the gospel would go forth and do its work. Father, for those of us that are already in your precious bride, God, I pray that this word would encourage us, God, and on our worst days, I pray that we would remember that our best day was your worst day and that because you did it, we can get through it. Father, I pray we would be encouraged through the power and keeping power of your gospel, that we would have a fruitful rest of the day and that this word would go forth and bless us all. Thank you for Pastor Rick and for this church. I pray that you'll bless them in their going and in their coming and that we'll just have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. In your name, amen.